This country has a wonderful tradition of gratitude, as displayed by the first runner-up, who has to hug and kiss the winner <laughs> and say, I'm so happy for you. <laughs> this is the way we all learn gratitude. We watch our TV set in our early years, uh, or as we get elected to uh, treasurer of the school class. How many people here have been elected to something sometime in their life? <laughs> or we fall in love. It's the same thing. <laughs> Gail and I have some wonderful neighbors, Bon and Jeannie. Uh, Gene and Bonnie Smith, and uh, they bought a Subaru recently. And we were just thought it was a wonderful car, and so we went out and bought the identical Subaru. <laughs> Their Subaru jerked, and ours didn't. And they had to take it into the place, and they had to write Denver, and this went on. And we were so grateful because our Subaru didn't jerk. And then there's the other people in our profession who can be grateful for that. If you're a painter, you say, oh, I'm so sorry that you're not selling anymore, because you just noticed that not a single painting sold in the show. Or maybe you see this. Uh, a friend of mine was at a premiere opening. There are a lot of beautiful people coming. Paul Newman and Joanne Woodward walked through the door, and she overheard this behind her. There was a man sitting there. Paul Newman, you know, has become gray. And the man said, would you look at that? Would you look at Paul Newman? Look, he is the same age as I am, and he's all white. <laughs> And then, of course, we, we know this experience of our friend who we see, and they haven't aged well. And we say, well, jowls can be fun. If you don't have a beard, then the baby can play with your jowls, so you should look on the bright side of this. This is the American concept of gratitude, either that we are elevated or that someone is sunk in our presence and that we watch them gurgle as they go deep into the sea. And of course, gratitude has nothing to do with that, has nothing to do with our relative position, has nothing to do with how life favors us, how our genes favor us in the aging process, whether the uh, hailstorm hits our house or another one. And we must begin to let go of this sort of false sense of gratitude in order to begin experience real gratitude, which requires no future for its meaning, which requires no past for its meaning. There's no comparison necessary. We're happy now because we're so dumb. And this is the key to happiness, to become so dumb that you can be happy right now. 
and you just cast tomorrow aside. Of course, we're not taught to do this. To become as the uh, town idiot, to become as the, uh, even some retarded children, many, of course, handicapped and retarded kids are unhappy, but there are some that we see. You remember Goofy? I don't know whatever happened to Goofy. <clears throat> yup, okay, folks. <laughs> uh, I don't understand why you're so uh, unhappy. That's what we want to do is become goofy. <laughs> just absolutely. But what happens is that our mind is just one little jump ahead. We can't today enjoy your Thanksgiving dinner. Now, I'll tell you how to do that. <laughs> you, you feel the juices running down your throat as you chew on the turkey, unless, of course, you're vegetarian and you're chewing on your eggplant. <laughs> but feel the little non-egg juices going down. Don't ask, don't look to see what else is on your plate. Don't ask if you're running out of something. Don't get anxious because someone has just gotten up before you and you, you knew how much dressing was left up there on the table. This is the way not to enjoy your Thanksgiving dinner. Enjoy your friends. Enjoy the sunlight that we had. Enjoy this, this first snowfall that we had today and the light that reflects on it. Enjoy what the city government here does for us in our streets, these little reflecting pools that are put all over everywhere. We, are called, we call them potholes, but they're actually they're reflecting pools, you see. And you're so dumb that you don't know that they're potholes. They just look like little pieces of sky that have fallen on the street around you. Be so dumb that you can't tell the difference between a Detroit car and a toy car. Be so dumb that you can't tell the difference between a, um, a diesel horn and a French horn. A child can't. A child will delight. This is all we need to do. So totally present, so absent of the past and the future, that this flood of splendor that we just experienced here with all that great music can come into our heart and light our eyes. God must first be seen in something. We have to see God in something. And a little later on, we're going to have an opportunity for people to stand up and say what they're grateful for. I want to tell you some of the things that I'm grateful for. I'm indeed grateful for this church and for the music that we have here. I'm indeed grateful and shocked that you come to these meetings. <laughs> 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 this is literally, I have sat there in the car and said, what? why are they walking up that hill? <laughs> I'm grateful that we have only one famous person in Santa Fe, Kelly Garrett, 
<laughs> that the mayor declares Kelly Garrett Day. And uh, that everybody that's ever splashed on front of People magazine goes unnoticed as they walk up and down. <laughs> but the band turns out for Kelly Garrett. This is, makes this a wonderful city for me. We have to see splendor someplace. A meditation is a place that we see splendor. God is not in a meditation. God is not even in a prayer. It's a place we've decided to see splendor. And so we shut our eyes, we open our hearts, and we feel light. It's a place. We have created the place. Books contain no God. There's no God in the Bible or any place else. But we open the book and there's God. We create an open window. We draw back the curtains of our mind and there's the splendor. Never ask, are you loving someone too much? Never ask, are you too enthusiastic about some friend? Never ask, have you become attached to manana land? Never ask if you like walking in the arroyo too much. Joy is only to be increased, never to be questioned. Never is there a false reason for being happy. Never does there need to be anxiety behind your happiness because that's a limit on it. And so, of course, we can, we can give up gladly our terror, our fear, our tension, and let the joy expand. We must be off guard. Today, let's practice being off guard. Reckless, totally careless of everything. And then we'll begin to see the splendor. I can see it in my friends. I couldn't begin to list to you the, the friends that I have. I thought I would just list to you the friends I have to the west of me. Uh, because the population runs out very quickly to the west as I look west. I noticed that the people that live to the west of Gail and me, none of them are on a spiritual path except for one couple, and they have been the dearest, sweetest friends that anyone could possibly want. There's a doctor who comes running over with his little black bag at any time of night if we need help. There's a, a, a guy I call whenever Gail and I, my car gets stuck, runs out any time of night. There's a couple that that uh, trades with us to babysit. You have friends like that. You cannot appreciate them too much. You can bother them. <laughs> you don't have to tell them that, that, that you... Uh, this can be disconcerting, you know, if you suddenly start gushing as to how much you love someone. They can feel very anxious. You don't have to say it. 
It's all right to say it, and you might get a sense that this would be a just fine time to say it. But you can say it with your eyes, and you can say it with your patience, and you can say it with keeping your mind on them just like you keep it on the turkey dressing. You see? Just surrounding them with your attention, with your loving care. God is first seen in the things around us, in the people around us, in the music around us, the books, the meditations. Have you ever seen an ugly tree? Do you know an ugly cloud? Why then can we know an ugly baby? How could we know an ugly child? There's no such thing as an ugly behavior. It's only our past that tells us this. We need no ugliness. We need to be reckless. We need to give up all guarding, all defending, all projecting, and let the splendor come in. Now, in order to do this, we have to first touch our peace and then look upon our friends. Those of you who have read your sacred books and your scriptures know how flat and devoid of anything helpful they can be at a given time. And at another time, every page is illumined. We must first look at the peace. We must first touch the peace and then look upon the world. Because the form of the world holds nothing. It's what surrounds the world. We have so many examples of this. We have the 3D glasses <clears throat> that we used to wear in movies. You didn't have the 3D glass on, and suddenly you put the 3D glass on, and there's something there that you didn't see before. We've seen pictures of infrared cameras that do the same thing. There are children's books now with little sheets of acetate. Have you seen those? You take the piece of acetate and you put it over the picture, and suddenly you see something that you hadn't seen before. Or you wear glasses because you can't see, and you put the glasses on and now you can see. This is the nature of the world. Something must be put on. Something must be put into the heart before you look at your friend, before you look at the pumpkin pie. If you will first sink in the quicksand of light and peace, if you will first drown in God, as totally and completely as you can, if you will first fill yourself so full of light that you're swimming in it and it's just pouring out of every pore in your body, then, if you will look upon the world, you will see that you are thankful even for this world because you're seeing something that didn't seem to be there in the beginning. There is no one to fear. There is no relationship to depress us. 
It is not a relationship that depresses us. It is what we think we know about relationships that depresses us. If you just came from Mars, you would know nothing about how relationships are supposed to work. There would be nothing there to tell you that this friend is not loyal, that this marriage is not smooth, that this child is not well-behaved. Look at what we put up from children and think it's just great. And look at the other things, these arbitrary things that we don't put up with because we say it's not normal. It's all right for them to do this, but it's not all right for them to do that. How do we know that? Because we're smart. Be dumb. So in order for the splendor to come into our heart, we have to let the peace in. We have to drown ourselves in God. And the absolutely essential first step is to put the future in something's hands. Because your heart will not soften. Your mind will not open. If your mind is going constantly to the future to tell you how happy you should be about what's going on right now. And this is what we do. We look to our imagined future to tell us how happy we should be this instant. So you must put the future in something's hands. It's best to put it in God's hands, but many people don't like that word. And so put it in your banker's hands. Put it in uh, fate's hands. Put it in the, the swirl of... Uh... Oh, look at this. <laughs> now, don't think of the future. <laughs> Do you see all these little lives that are going on around you and, and the little plots and the little intentions and, and the little purposes that people are pursuing? Think of that for a moment. Every life going about some mad little scheme all around. Uh, uh, little committees and, and councils and uh, governments and things all around you, even in the city, going about some little purpose. Look, add to that the weather, add to that the seasons, add to that the potholes, add to that the traffic conditions, add to that the price of gasoline. What chance do you have of controlling the future? Look at this array of stuff that's going on. Add to that world governments, world conditions. Add to that your, your heredity your genes, your age. Add to that accidents. Even if you put your future in the hands of chaos, it is better because your heart will be relieved. 
Do not put the future on your heart. And you can be thankful. So say whatever words you have to say. I can't do anything about it anyway. But if you can put it in the hands of God, and if you can use that word, or if you have a word that's more personal to you, there is one who walks beside you. You have sensed this many times. You were quite aware of it as a child. Perhaps this one sat on your bed, and you've forgotten this completely. But you had a sense of someone with you, of a friend, of being taken care of. And the world said, no, no, you're alone. You'll die alone. Everyone that you see now will die. Everyone you know, every member of your family will either, will either die or you will die before them. And it will be lonely. But you didn't, you didn't know that as a child. You sensed something else. There is one who has always walked beside you. This one will become more and more distinct. You will feel the presence of this one more and more as you go along. There will be certain, certain very special moments that this one will speak to you, just as your car is starting to collide with another one, just as you have the heart attack, just as the baby is born. Suddenly you will know it. All arguments to the contrary will appear silly to you. There is one who walks beside you. Put the future in that friend's hands. Call that friend anything you wish. Jesus, your guardian, your teacher. This we must do on faith. There is no logic to putting the future in something's hands in this world. The world will offer you no reason to do this. It won't even offer you a way. It will only offer you questions as how to do it. The way you do it is you just put it in God's hands. You just say, no. I will put that in God's hands. I've got to do this, got to do this, got to do this. If I don't do this, such and such is going to happen. No, I'll just put that in God's hands. Uh, it's This is overdue. I have gotten behind and this is going to happen. No, I'll just put that in God's hands. There's this condition in my body and no one can do anything about it. And I've gone to this expert and that person and this doctor and that. No, I'll just put it in God's hands. That's the way you do it. It's so simple, the ego can't even understand a simplicity like that. You just put it in God's hands. You take this thought that's running you off into the future and destroying the present, just wiping it out as if it's some sort of aftermath of a nuclear holocaust. Because you, you've left it, your heart's left it, your love's left it, it's all gone away, there's nothing but desert around you. Put it in your friend's hands. And your heart will return, and your love will return, and the light will return, and the relaxation, and you'll be an idiot again. <laughs> Prize this minute. Cherish every second of it. Dote over it. 
Every one of you have had a moment in which you have done that. I can remember as a kid, uh, when I was in high school, some friends of mine and I bummed around Europe. We came back to this country after a month or two of Europe. And I love the expressways and I love the power lines and I love it. Has anyone had that experience of being away from home? You come back home and suddenly you see home. I can remember it happening to me in boot camp. <laughs> suddenly I was released from boot camp. It's the same thing. I looked at the world as if I'd never seen it. I was in jail once. Same thing happened. It's happened to you. There's no doubt about our capacity for it. There's no doubt about the goodness and the richness that we see when we look around us in that manner. So do what you need to do to allow yourself to look around you in that manner and be so grateful for this instant and all it contains. It contains everything there is. It contains God and your home and your awakening. It contains a heaven that excludes no living thing. The following is Hugh's second talk on happiness. If there's the least possibility that it will make you happy, do it. <laughs> now that message was received within you by two separate things one was your heart and the other was Edgar the higher ego now what Edgar heard was Oh, I've got to leave Marge and the kids and the parrot and uh, go to Indiana and dig for snails. Because this is the fantasy that you've always had, you see, to be a, a captain on a riverboat or something, and all must be sacrificed now. So to say that if there is the least possibility that it will make you happy, do it, then the ego interprets that as a call for broad and drastic change. It's excited by the very idea that, of the changes that might occur. But there's another part of us that hears that message. And that's our heart. And on the level of the world, If there is any way that you can make your life duller, that will make you happier. If there's anything that you can bring a settling to, then this will allow your heart to open. It is not possible for the mind and the heart, or let me put it this way, it is not possible for the heart and the body to both be happy. It is not possible for us to pursue what we think of as the purposes of our little body, this little body that we've got, 
and comb its hair and all that. See if there's any red in its eye and put little drops in it and so forth. That The purpose of the body, or what we think is the purpose of the body, cannot be served and at the same time the heart be served. They go in opposite directions. So either you are seeking the happiness of your heart and the happiness of the hearts of those around you or you're seeking the happiness of your body. Now that doesn't have to do with sensual pleasure. We're not, I'm not talking, I'm talking about the body in the broad sense. What is the purpose of the body? What is this little life plot? What are these, all these things I'm going to do before I die that no one will talk about six or eight months after I've died? And they're not talking about them in the way you think they are right now. <laughs> On Thanksgiving Day, we talked about how the first key to happiness is stupidity and incompetence. <laughs> we must become dumb. We must become so dumb that we can enjoy this instant. We must become so off guard that we can allow ourselves to be happy right now. We have to become what the ego might think of as brain damaged. <laughs> and we're just goofy. We're just goofy about this moment and we're just goofy about the people around us. And there is no thing added. There's no but or yes but. Which is one of those wonderful contradictions that the ego comes up with. Yes, but. And then the second thing that we talked about Thanksgiving, the second part of what we might call the first key, is incompetence. So in order to release our heart and to become truly stupid, we have to declare our incompetency about the future and turn the future over to our best friend. Turn the future over to our guardian, to that which walks beside us, to that which was so close to us when we were an infant. And perhaps you can even remember as a child. This friend who walks beside you, who even now has its arm around you, that guides you and will lead you home, it is into it's hands that we place the future because we are so incompetent. We have been declared incompetent. We have been declared senile. So first we become senile and then we declare ourselves legally senile. We cannot make any decision about the future. Now, of course, if something comes up that we think would improve our chances for peace and we can do it now, we do it because it's now. But anything that we cannot put our hands on, anything that we cannot do now, we give over to our best friend. So that was the first key. Stupidity and incompetence. Now we're going to introduce the second key to happiness. This is the flip side. <laughs> Dullness and insensitivity. <laughs> now we've been in existence here 
a full year, and I know that there are people who don't think this is a real church. And I've, I've told you ways that we can become a real church, and one of the very best, I can remember this so well from my childhood, we haven't done this quite enough, is I say something, and then you say it right after me. <laughs> Isn't that the way they do it in the real churches? Okay. <laughs> so, now remember, we're already C now, and we're already incompetent, and um, now we're going to become dull. <laughs> now, this is the dulling of, this, of the melodrama, of the soap opera. It's the turning down of the volume on General Hospital. We wish we were just going to turn it down a little bit. That's what, what we mean by dullness. All these things that we get caught up in that seem so important, especially this time of year. All the shopping and we never have enough money to do it and never like the presents that we... And we always rail against it. And why does this go on year after year? And we go around talking to our friends and say, well, this year we won't exchange presents. And they betray you. They buy you a present. <coughs> and you've betrayed them, too, because you had a present just in case they bought one. <laughs> now, this dullness, along with the Celestial senility and the incompetence. This will start your heart running. And what does this? What is the sound of a of a motor as it starts up? It's rum. All right, now we're going to be a real church now. So <laughs> I'm going to say, I'm going to repeat that, and then you say it after me. And we'll, we'll, we'll get there. We'll be legitimate. So first let me say it. <clears throat> and now you say <clears throat> Very good. Very good. All right. Okay. Now if you break that down, <laughs> you get R-R-M-M. -M. <laughs> and that stands for rest. <laughs> Routine, moderation, and meditation. Rest, routine, moderation, and meditation. Now, doesn't that sound dull? That is dull. Isn't that dull? Rest comes first. This is the most important thing. This is the thing to remember for the rest of your life. It is not activity. It is not excitement. It is not new challenges. It is not uh, things that you're going to knock over or people you're going to brush aside or mountains you're going to climb. It is rest that will open your heart. <coughs> resting your body. Resting your relationships. Just your relationship. For example, if you just were to take your relationship with your with your love, with your spouse, or with your child, and you were to rest it, if you were to treat it as a third person and rest it, give it little breaks, look at your relationship, your primary relationship, and say, have I given this a break recently? Have I taken this relationship 
for a walk on the plaza? Have I taken this relationship for a nice dinner? Have I, what have I done for the relationship? Have I given it a break? Or do I always ask for it over and over? Why are there more suicides on Christmas than any other time of the year? We try to milk it like some old dried up cow. If there's nothing in Christmas to get out of it. Christmas is the time of giving. Christmas is the celebration of the most gentle of all givers. But we look at Christmas as something that will help us, something that will do something for us, something that will bring excitement or happiness or closeness or friendship. (coughs) And we teach our children this. And then there's Christmas afternoon. Christmas afternoon, we realize that Christmas is not going to give us anything. It's just the 25th of December. That's all it is. But Christmas, if it's in our heart, and if it's a, if it's a renewal, and if it's a breaking out of love, will do something for us. And in order for that to happen, we must begin with rest. More, and you cannot rest enough. Now, this isn't running from the world. This isn't withdrawing into a monastery, although it's perfectly all right to do that. This isn't saying, oh, the world's awful, I will run away from it. This is the decision to walk in peace through the world. We don't run from the world. We walk in peace through it. And in order to do that, you must have rest. And the second thing, curiously enough, is you must have routine. Routine has nothing to do with some sort of worrying about the future and planning and calculating and guarding ourselves against and rehearsing and rehearsing. It has to do with a settling of the way in which you walk through this earth. You settle this in your mind as to what brings you peace. It takes a while for this to happen. But you weigh different events, different relationships, different foods, different clothes, different jobs if you need to. And you settle upon a routine so that the world will stop clamoring. And you can hear the song in your heart. Because unless the world stops clamoring, you will not hear the song and the light will not come on inside you. It will eventually, but it will not come on inside you until you can hear the song in your heart strongly enough that you know that this is the only thing you want. Is this anthem. And that you want to turn this light on and this song on inside everyone around you. You want them to be happy. And so you bring this blanket of divine dullness to everything that you do. So your heart will be bright and shining and nothing will interfere.
The two M's are meditation, which is the last, and before that is moderation. The ego doesn't like that word, moderation. Sounds very unexciting. <coughs> it's a sheer pleasure, though. To do just enough of it, whatever the it is, so that your ego doesn't act up. You do just enough of it. So it's important to cheat. It's important to cheat. For example, if you found that there are there are foods that make you unpeaceful, every once in a while, if you see your ego has gotten extremely upset about the stand that you've taken on a particular food, then you give it just enough of the food to let it settle back down. That's moderation. You do not go to some extreme. Because the mistake that we make on a spiritual path is we define certain things as either spiritual or unspiritual, and we think our way home is to go from one extreme to the other. So we put severe limits on our behavior, on our dress. We start, start worrying about whether or not we should use hairspray or something. We get all caught up in this form. Moderation is you simply see what stirs up your ego. And if it's a denial that's uh, stirring it up, you give it just a little. Just enough to settle it back down. Very much like, as I've mentioned here before, Mother Teresa does with speaking engagements. She's made it very clear that she does not personally like speaking engagements. And yet, if she were to take no speaking engagements, do you see what would happen? There'd be this intense preoccupation with what's going on there. And there, in uh, 60 Minutes in uh, 2020 and everybody else would send out teams to find out what she was doing because she wasn't appearing publicly. So she appears just enough. We see what happened to uh, Howard Hughes and others that went to this extreme isolation. They became more noticeable. So moderation means that you go through this world like a gentle breeze. It's so slight that, that people don't even notice the very slight rustling of the leaves. That's what moderation is. It means gentleness. It's the walking upon water that we've talked about here before. And the last is meditation. Which, from an ego standpoint, is a dullness of the mind. Now the mind isn't carrying us away. First this place and that place. It's a settling of the mind just as we've settled our little life plot. It's a calming. It's a quieting. It's a relaxing, it's a resting of thought in which our heart can speak and sing and carry us along. Another way of summarizing is to put it in words, for those of you who like words, 
no hurry, no worry. Okay, now I'm going to say that. Why don't you say it after me? First, I'll say it. No hurry, no worry. No hurry, no worry. This true, these words truly come straight from heaven. I'm telling you, you don't, you need no more words than this. If you are worrying, it's because you are hurrying. And if you will stop hurrying, you will stop worrying. If you are sick, it is because you are hurrying. If you will stop hurrying, your body will heal. If there is tension in your relationships, it's because you are hurrying. Let go of the sense of rush, of need, of tension. Of having to accomplish something. Of having to bring this person closer. Let go of the hurry. The worry will leave. And there will be only the peace of God that's left. So take your choice of these two gems. Earn or no hurry, no worry. <laughs> Let it not be said that you came to this dispensable church and left empty handed. <laughs> And the second part of the second key is insensitivity. So there's dullness and insensitivity. Now this is the most difficult one to speak of because it's so easily misunderstood and misinterpreted. It sounds like being cruel and cold-hearted. So let's talk about the ways in which the world makes us guilty. Now, the, the, the first way is so obvious, and that is someone will tell you something that you did that hurt them or hurt someone else. So this is, of course, we do this, we all do this to each other all the time. In little ways, we point out how we have hurt someone else. But let's look, that's so obvious, and we can all sense that. And if we point out to someone else that they're doing that to us, then, of course, we're doing the same thing, aren't we? We're saying, you're, you're making me feel guilty. What are we doing? We're making them feel guilty for making us feel guilty, and so we've, we haven't healed the situation. Nothing's been accomplished. Now, I spoke to you about the fact that we, we had some uh, young pros here a while back uh, who uh, took money from a number of places, including your pockets, and... Uh, uh, these were, of course, children of God. But let's just look at their egos just for a second. This is something else that people don't think you should do, that you should not look at someone else's ego. It is true that it's almost never helpful to discuss someone's ego with another person and cluck about it. But to simply look straight at what the ego is doing in another person can be helpful, especially if you're not around them at the moment. If you do it quietly and just say, well, this is the way their ego operates, my ego operates in another way, and so-and-so's operating. We all, our egos express themselves in some way. This is just the particular way that it expresses itself. It is no better nor worse than the way mine expresses itself. My ego is no better than anyone else's, we say. But to see how an ego is expressing itself without discussing this with other people, because you just get an ego discussion and the whole thing is not helpful. But to look at it calmly and quietly, can show you what's not important 
and what you can bring to rest and what you cannot get caught up in and what you cannot do battle with because you're interested in turning on the light in this person's heart and not what their ego's up to. It makes no difference what their ego's up to, but if you can see what it's up to, then you can do what you need to to walk around it and not fall into that trap and not rise to the bait because all egos offer you bait. And if you see that, oh, that's just this particular person's <clears throat> ego, and here's the bait, and I will very gently not take the bait. I will not rise to the bait. I will put my, heart, my arm around my brother and my sister and not my attention on his or her ego. So I think our, our, uh, the, the pros that came to this church uh, this is almost, I mean, we had so many wonderful examples here in a very short period of time. Many of the things we were talked about, we all got first-hand lessons. The ego, the higher ego says it's better to say yes than to say no. And so, of course, we pulled out our money. And, of course, we stopped doing this after several times. We realized that there was a different story every Sunday. But look at how it operated. And we're, I'm not going to identify these people. And actually, there's a change of cast. There was actually several people that played this game for a period of time. But those of you who were approached by one of these uh, young men uh, know that one of the tactics was that they would give you a terrible story and then stare at you. And they would just sit there and stare at you. And if you said no, they'd follow you around and just stare at you. And who here has seen the billboard with the starving child that just stares at you? On your way to Big Macs, having a Big Mac, and there's the billboard, and the starving child is staring. What are you supposed to do about this? Well, you're supposed to uh, get only the chicken McNugget and, uh, and no sauce. I mean, what are you supposed to do about this? But that's not the purpose. The purpose of the ego is to make you feel guilty, not to have you do anything. Now, from time to time, I've told you what Gail and I have done, because when I speak about this kind of thing, of becoming insensitive, of turning our back on the misery of the world, but not on the world, but on the misery of the world, then people think that this calls for some sort of shunning of our brother or our sister. So I have done, Gail and I have done what many of you have done, and that is we have adopted two children, one in Lebanon and um, one in uh, El Salvador, and uh, we've had them for about three years or so. This was something we could do about starving children, and so we send them a little money uh, periodically on a regular schedule, but not so much money that would cause a problem. And they send us little pictures of themselves and give us little reports. It's just a wonderful, wonderful thing. It, it doesn't affect the starvation of the world, but it was something we could do. We could afford two children. We couldn't have afforded three. And so that's what we did. But we did it from our heart, 
and not out of a sense of guilt, because I can remember the days that I felt guilty and angry about world starvation, and we did nothing. But what I'm saying is if we do it from our heart, we will be helpful. We will uplift. And we will do it now, because anger has to do with the future and the past. Look what has gone on, we say. And what are we going to do about it in the future? And we're in a state of rage, little rage or a small rage, about our friends or about some condition. And the one element that could help is missing. And that is the peace of God. And that is this instant. So we practice true insensitivity to things we can't do anything about, and we concern ourselves with what we can do this instant. Is there someone at the service station that we can bring a little peace to? Is there someone in our mind, some lonely figure in a hospital that we know about, that we can bless this instant? Where does the anger that fills us go? What does it do for this person who needs our blessing? Is there some patience that we can exercise? Is there some rest we can bring? Our interest in the world, our many interests in the world, carry our mind away. And those of you who have done the exercises that have been suggested here about watching your thoughts, making your mind heal, bringing it back, have begun to see that it is what you still long for in this world, what you still find important in this world, that takes your mind away from this instant. Once again, there's nothing to do about that but just to notice it. Catalog it if you wish, but see that you have these many loves out there these many interests. Why else think about the world? When you can think about your brother and your sister who stands before you this instant. And you can bring peace now, not in some never, never land. So it is in our love of the world that our mind is scattered. And all of us are in the point at the point now in which our mind is scattered most of the time. And there's very little present. And I would like to end with one final step that I want to, to add to these exercises that we've been doing the last several Sundays. Because the question came up, I'm sure, what do I do with my mind now that it's in the present? And that comes straight from your ego. You don't do anything with your mind when it's in the present. Because God is in the present. Your father, mother, your savior, your comforter. Universal love. Infinite caring. And your personal parent. And your best friend. And your love. 
and yourself. It's all one and it's all here now. So what do you do when you make your mind heal? When you watch the thought as it goes off and you see your mind come back just because you've watched it running off, it comes back. It's your heart that watches it. That's why it comes back. Your heart doesn't want to go out there and consider one more bit of nonsense. And of course your mind comes back. And to what does it come back to? It comes back to God. It comes back to reality. It is a homecoming. And so the final thing that I would like to suggest is that as you watch your thoughts run out and run out and run out and you see the particular things that still call to you in this world and watching them they return. You think of the return as a homecoming. And you feel the arms of God. And you feel the substance to which you return. And you sense the total vacuity. The emptiness. The nothingness of where it ran off to. So it runs off into nothing. Angry considerations. Worries. Vain imaginings and excitements. All so empty. Because they're not present. There's no heart in them. There's no real blood in them. So your mind runs off into nothing and it comes back to substance. It come back, comes back to love. It comes back to your father's love for you. It comes back to your homecoming. And you say to yourself, I am so happy to be back home. Because when you bring your mind back to the present, you are home. You are at least entering the door to your home. The door has swung open and you can feel the warmth coming through the door. And you can hear the music coming through the windows. And the lawns of heaven surround you. It is a place. It is a substance. It is yourself. And so the last thing I would like to suggest is Continue with the exercise. Watch the scattering of your thought. Let it come back in. And as it comes back to the present, say, I'm so happy to be back with you. I love you so much. And together, we will lift this earth from misery.